another season of Why Wasn't It Better. I am your host, Patrick Darms. And I am your co-host, Anton Paras, here for season three. Season three. Oh, Anton, I'm so excited. We, we've taken a little recording hiatus, and I gotta say, I, I really missed our, our sessions. Same. Uh, the listeners won't notice, though. No, they, won't. they will not. Yeah, we didn't even have to say that, but we did. Because we like to keep the listeners somewhat informed. Exactly. I was on a bit of a vacation on my end. Um, yeah, how was it? Also, it was it was good. It was relaxing. Did get sick, though, which was not fun, but I'm on the mend now. And, and what a better way to um, uh, you know cure your sickness than discussing um, another disappointing movie. Yeah, so this might actually make me violently ill. So we'll see how this goes. Yeah, yeah. So we're kicking off this season, and because you know we're in the midst of October now, which is a spooky season, we're covering um, what is on paper supposed to be a horror movie. Yes, but yeah. yes, it's one of the most <laughs> infamous sequels of all time. We're talking about Exorcist Two: The Heretic, not The Exorcist Two, just Exorcist Two. Right. Don't get confused with any films you may hear about in theaters right now. That's another reason why we wanted to cover this one because of uh, the new Exorcist movie, which is called The Exorcist Believer, which is in theaters now. It came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, before we get into that, I would like to uh, get a little admin out of the way because I. I had a question from a listener, mm -hmm. which was, yep. are there any new theatrical releases that we might be covering this season or anytime soon? So I, I compiled uh, a list of films that maybe we might do. I don't know. We'll see, depending on how they're received and if we get around to seeing them. I mean, I, I'm yeah. saying this with full awareness that we said we were going to cover Oppenheimer and we, we never yeah. did. We will at some point. We'll get around to it. Yeah, I, I love the spirit of the question, though. Great question. Number one on the list is the new Scorsese movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, which comes out. Um, I, I actually don't know when it comes out. I, I assume sometime before the end of the year. I would imagine yeah. a lot of folks are excited for this. Scorsese really, you know, gets the film buffs excited. It is definitely an Academy Award style trailer. I'll tell you that. Number two on the list of films we might cover is this new Ridley Scott movie, Napoleon, which I am really excited and I really hope is not disappointing. I hope we don't have to cover it. That's my point. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's hard. And like, I think one thing to consider is it's always just we're capturing a moment in time. We don't know how maybe critics or audiences will feel 10 years from now about the film. We're just trying to right. capture how we feel now. But yeah, Napoleon, the trailer looks really good. Uh, number three, Ferrari. I, I could see this being a potential film that we cover. Uh, this is a new Michael Mann movie. And I am a Michael Mann fan, but I have to admit, Anton, I was looking at his filmography. He hasn't made a great film in 20 years. Mm, that's uh, fair, fair to note, but um, I'm actually really excited for Ferrari. Same. Looks pretty good. His, his last film that I saw, uh, which was Black Hat, which was uh, with Chris Hemsworth, like, holy crap, that was a bad movie. Mm, I don't know if you caught that one. Did not. Well, we're going to cover it at some point in the future. And uh, why don't you introduce the next film we might cover while I let my cat in? Sounds good to me. Well, another film, of course, uh, we do have um, quite a few of these films already reviewed. And we have the Marvels releasing uh, in, I want to say, a few short weeks. Um, it's always great to see how M the MCU has evolved, for better or worse. And with that, we do have a film that there's been a bit of a 
you know, a pause with all the Marvel releases. I know that folks are, have entered a bit of a Marvel fatigue. So curious to see how this film's received and if it does end up becoming a box office and critical success or perhaps maybe it doesn't. Maybe the expectation is it's not going to do well, in which case if it beats that, that could be fun and interesting to review as well. Well, I can already tell you we are going to have to cover it at one point because there's no possibility it'll be good. Are you took? Are you so you're on the over and under? You're taking the over that it's going to be bad. Yeah, it's going to be bad to me at least. Okay, we have another film that I'm actually personally very excited about. Just really? because? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm excited because <laughs> I love like the franchise and because it's more of a direct in more of a direct correlation to the original film. So Wonka, uh, not that any, like you, you, you wrote it out well in the notes. No one asked for it. Um, no, now the Tim Burton version was just a monstrosity, but it had, it was not connected to the original (laughs) uh, film that had come out in the seventies. So this is actually connected to that film. It's more of a prequel to that particular film. So, I'm oh, it is. curious. Okay. Okay. I'm yeah, I'm curious and interested. And so that's uh that's where I land for my expectations. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not excited for Wonka, but I am excited to cover the Tim Burton remake because that actually might be Tim Burton's worst movie. Remember on the, our very first episode where we covered the Planet of the Apes remake and we were discussing, is this Tim Burton's worst movie? It might be Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Very weird vibe. We do have it listed. Oh, we're definitely covering it. Yeah. There are some other films uh, that also are releasing that could warrant, um, could, that could definitely warrant going, going over. Now, maybe this didn't hit your radar. What do you, what do you know about Five Nights at Freddy's? (laughs) Nothing. So what if I told you that that particular video game has, is one of the most beloved like horror franchise video games of like Gen Z and like uh, Gen Z and young millennials? I, I will take your word for it. Yeah, it is insane. The fan base for Five Nights at Freddy's and now that there's a film coming out, it would be an interesting to see like how does that match to it? Like I'm telling you, like there's there's such a culture around already like streamers, YouTubers, and Five Nights at Freddy's like feeds a lot into that because of how how much just the younger generation loved watching very popular YouTubers um like Markiplier play Five Nights at Freddy's. So to see a film actually coming out like is a pretty big deal. Hmm. I genuinely have no idea what it is. Like I've never heard of it. Yeah, man, look it up. The whole premise is there's like a scary haunted Chuck E. Cheese type place and someone has to be a security guard and survive because the animatronics are dangerous. I don't want to go too much into the lore, which funny enough, it actually has a very expansive lore. So when you get a when you get a sec pat, it's it's definitely bizarre how much of a following Five Nights at Freddy's has. And depending on the release, it could be a very it could be very topical for the season. Hmm. Okay. Another question someone asked me, there's a lot of rumors swirling about Christopher Nolan directing the next Bond movie or perhaps movies. 
and then he wants to set it in the 1950s. How do we feel about this? Oh, I mean, you're our resident James Bond aficionado. So please, what are your thoughts? This sounds intriguing on paper, but I hope it doesn't happen. I don't have a problem with Nolan directing a movie, but I don't want it to be set in the past. James Bond has always been a product of its time, and the time capsule element is one of the things that I think makes the older films so fun to rewatch. Mm -hmm. I like how the series has changed with the passing of time. Bond movies should be evolving, not trying to dig up the past. I didn't love the Daniel Craig era, but I give them credit for at least trying to adapt and do something new. But to quote Cubby Broccoli, the longtime producer of the films, Bond films should exist, quote, five minutes in the future. They're not supposed to be period pieces, and I think setting a film in the 50s or the 60s would only make me nostalgic for, like, the Sean Connery era. That's how I feel about it. Okay. Well, at the end of the day, I'm always excited for some more Bond in my life, and I feel like it's been a bit since we said bye to Daniel Craig. So, I mean, I'm into it. Ultimately, I'm going to be excited for any Bond movie. Anything else to add, Anton, admin-wise? Admin-wise, we always talk about sports. Where are we in the sports world right now? Baseball, playoffs, I haven't watched any of it. NBA is yep. about to kick off. There's been some really good soccer on recently. Mm -hmm. It looks like a pretty competitive Premier League race so far. Man City is not pulling away. Arsenal's giving them a run for their money. Spurs are uh, pretty unexpectedly, they're off to their best start ever since they last won the league way back in the 1960-61 season, so I'm pretty happy about that. And they're doing it without Harry Kane, maybe a little Ewing theory potential there. Mm. So we'll say, yeah, there's some good, good sports stuff on. I mean, for anyone that's followed the NBA preseason and all of the offseason moves, I, it's interesting to see what Milwaukee is going to do going to do this season are they going to be as dominant as predicted uh they they sign someone that can score points but can't play defense at all so he can score a lot of points though yeah but he but he can't uh he, he'll be missing on the defensive end but we'll <laughs> see how that goes i don't know i, I would um, i would have done the same thing if i were milwaukee it's a good trade and then the warriors signed the chris paul fit I was going to say, I would say fair to say the, if it was the, the Joker to their Batman, it was their, it's definitely the Warriors arch nemesis is Chris Paul. And now you have Chris Paul on the team. They look good in the preseason. I mean, it's just the preseason and I may yeah, be an overly worry. optimistic fan. Yeah, he'll get hurt at some point. <laughs> he'll stop caring about one yeah. game in. He'll pull a hamstring in a playoff series and disappoint all your fans. Mm -hmm. mm, well... Then there's the rest of Knicks the roster, nothing, which that's okay. I'm okay with that. So you're all in on this current Knicks roster. I'm not all in on it, but I mean, they wasted money on overpaid, mediocre players for a long, long time. And I'm glad they're finally out of that phase. It's just investing in who they currently have. And to be fair, they did make some entertaining runs. Yeah. I mean, that's the point I'm at. Like, can they just uh, actually like just be competitive and win a playoff series or two. I'm not asking for the moon and the stars. Well, it's very realistic. It's the only thing you can be when you support the Knicks. Realistic. <laughs> and now, unfortunately, it's time to talk about this week's movie, Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Ugh. Yeah. We were, I mean, well, we'll get to it. I just want to say for the listeners, um, there's no guest, if you haven't figured that out by now. I, I have, 
we have friends that are real horror movie aficionados, mm-hmm. and we invited them to be on this podcast, and they all passed. They're like, which movie well, is yeah. it? I was like, oh, the yeah, Exorcist too, and they're no thanks. It's because they're horror aficionados, and they know this isn't actually a horror film. <laughs> Did they even try to market this as a horror movie? I didn't even watch the trailer. I didn't bother. Yeah, I didn't bother. There may have been a novelization to this. I didn't bother. Um, anyway, I'll intro this. Owing to his experience with exorcisms, Father Lamont is chosen by his superiors at the Vatican to investigate the death of Father Merrin, who died during the exorcism of young Regan McNeil in the first exorcist film. Lamont finds Regan under the psychiatric care of Dr. Jean Tuscan. By hypnotizing the girl, he is able to learn that Merrin previously exorcised the same demon from a boy in Africa named Kokomo. 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 I don't know. <laughs> Hoping for answers, Lamont travels to Africa in search of the boy. Exorcist 2, The Heretic, was released on June 17th, 1977 by Warner Brothers Pictures. It was directed by John Borman. The screenplay was written by William Goodhart, based on the characters created by William Peter Blatty. The film stars Linda Blair, Richard Burton, Louise Fletcher, Max von, Max von Sydow, Kitty Wynn, Paul Heinrich, and James Earl Jones. Budget of $14 million, that is $70 million adjusted for inflation, and a box office return of $30 million, that is $155 million adjusted for inflation. Anton, why was this movie chosen? Well, I think it's because uh, actually you hate me, and you wanted <laughs> me to experience this film so that way I can have this torment my memories and cause a piece of trauma that could only be expunged from my memory through some sort of um, device that would allow others to also sift through my memories like in this film. But yes, that I'm, aside, I'm glad you vaguely described the device that they use in this film because I'm, I'm still not quite sure what it does. Right, right. Um, nor how there's expert mastery of it just by <laughs> asking, hey, why didn't I try it on? Um, <laughs> I know what she is. <laughs> okay um but that aside i mean all joking aside yeah all 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 joking aside it's fair to say that the predecessor to this film the original exorcist that was a pretty big movie right Uh, i'd say more than pretty big it's one of the most famous movies of all time right and with that once you have a film that not only is a horror film is culturally significant um, by so many different levels, um, Academy Award nominated. So, oh yeah, those are those are only a few of the categories that we're touching on here that this film is stands on. But on top of that, made a significant amount of money. The most commercially successful film ever released by Warner Brothers at the time in 1973, adjusted for inflation. Get this, it is still one of the highest grossing films of all time. I did not realize this until doing the research, but. If you, adjust, if you adjust the ticket price inflation, the original Exorcist is the ninth, ninth highest grossing film of all time in North America at $1.1 billion. It sold 110 million tickets. Just to give mm. you some perspective, the U.S. population in 1973 was 211 million. Jeez. That's how big it was at the time. Like, that, like, like folks, like that is insane to yeah. think of. And especially a film like that having such a resonating... Yeah, an Just R-rated connection. horror film. No one saw that coming. No. no one. No, it was really what you'd call the first prestige horror film. 
the original Exorcist, it's been ripped off and referenced so many times. It, it's probably impossible mm-hmm. to quantify. Right. It's, I mean, so many visuals, the music, the premise. Oh, yeah. It's uh, iconic. Yeah. And even just on that, the fact that it really does play on so many different subjects that resonate with just people on a core level. It, it's just fantastic. And that brings us to the sequel, this movie that we're covering. It's one of the most infamous sequels of all time. It's considered one of the worst sequels of all time. And that's why we're covering it. And, you know, it is October. So even though uh, I don't think anyone would find this movie remotely scary at all, that's why we're covering it. And for whatever reason, that's why we chose to uh, open season three. You know, I think about it more. It's probably a great decision to open the season with this because this fits the bill for our podcast and it's a home run in that sense but in every other oh, sense yeah. it's a it, it it uh struck out directed by the talented john borman uh he's done some pretty famous stuff deliverance is one of the best films ever and then excalibur yep. is a really well-known king arthur adaptation and the point i'm bringing up borman is he was no slouch when it came to replacing william friedkin who who um did not want to do this film and we'll get to that a little bit more in the production history mm-hmm. but the hype for this movie was huge. This would have been one of the most highly anticipated sequels of its era. And this is when an era when sequels, you know, they weren't probably weren't as big of a deal as they would become, especially for the horror genre. But Linda Blair was returning to the role of Reagan. That would have been a big deal back in the 70s. She was a household name back then. Her career wouldn't really go anywhere after this. She went through a lot of personal struggles that, you know, we don't have to go into. And then, of course, the most famous actor in this film, Richard Burton, if any of our younger listeners don't know who he is, think of an old school Russell Crowe. He is one of the most (laughs) acclaimed actors of the 20th century. He's in the pantheon of all time greats. If you Google like greatest actors of all time, his name usually pops up. He's given some truly legendary performances. And and if you haven't seen any of his work, check it out. I'm talking stuff like Beckett, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Robe, Cleopatra, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and one of my all-time favorite movies, Where Eagles Dare. Died pretty young a long time ago, but great actor. And you get a a sense of that Shakespearean depth in the film. I mean, we'll talk about his performance, but... (laughs) No, I mean, I was going to say, but, you know, listeners, when you when you take when you watch the film, um, just know that that, yeah, Burton has a bit of a reputation and gravity to his career. So very interesting to see him included in the film. Uh, Definitely not a slouch. No. And then uh, one of the other well-known, well, sort of well-known, Louise Fletcher, who plays Dr. Tuscan. She was coming off of her Oscar winning performance in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ooh, that Nurse would, Ratchet? would have been a big deal. Yeah, Nurse Ratchet, a very famous movie character. She's probably not a well-known name at this point. Uh, her career didn't really go much anywhere after this, but we'll, again, we'll get to that. But then you had Max von Sydow. He was back. James Earl Jones is in this. Ned Beatty has a cameo. There's some pretty well-known faces in this movie. And we, you know, we kind of teased it already. This is one of the most universally despised sequels of all time. It's always mentioned on the worst films of all time list. Its reputation has not improved over time. It's every bit as hated now as it was then when it came out. And you said it, Anton. This is a perfect choice for this podcast. Absolutely. And I don't know about you, Anton, but this is one of the the rare examples where I had never heard a single positive thing about this movie from anyone. 
it had such a bad reputation that I didn't even see it until we had to do it for this podcast. I just avoided it because anyone I knew that had seen it told me, like, just don't watch it. This is the first for this podcast. We're covering a film that I had never seen before. Everything else I'm I'm pretty sure I'd seen. And you feel better after you watched it, right? Uh, I did not. I did not. But we'll okay. I feel better in the fact that we're covering it and I think we're going to have fun talking about it. But uh, no, I did not enjoy watching this movie. Okay, that's fair. How about you? Uh, I I had seen this film a while back because it was available at my local library. Fans may know there's a lot of those um, VHS of older films available at libraries in the 90s. And this film was one of them. I remember back then not enjoying it, but that was in the context of being younger and now the context of being a an adult and re-watching the film. I will just say I did not enjoy it. Fair enough. One of the other things I, I realized about doing the research for this, I thought there were a lot more Exorcist films in the series. I'm talking about the official Exorcist franchise. I thought there were more films than there actually are. It turns out none of those exorcism of fill-in-the-blank movies, they're not related to this no. at all. No, not at all. Uh, I, I just assumed they were. But So for the listeners, if you don't know, because I didn't, the official series is as follows. We had The Exorcist, released in 1973. This film released in 1977. Exorcist 3, a.k.a. Legion, released in 1990. Exorcist The Beginning, released in 2004. And then Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist, released in 2005. I've never seen either one of them. And then, of course, we have this new film that came out a week or two ago, Exorcist Believer. And there's apparently going to be uh, at least one more sequel to that coming out in a couple of years. And here's some hilarious trivia for you. So this new film, uh, Blumhouse Productions is the film company that is um, that is that made it. They paid four hundred million dollars to get the Exorcist rights. Four hundred million, and um, it's currently enjoying a twenty-two percent Rotten Tomato score. So it's it's more than twice as good as this movie, Anton, because this has a ten percent Rotten Tomato score. Ten percent. Well, I'm glad that they got the value they wanted. Yeah, with their purchase. Must, just, what a steal that was! Four hundred million dollars for a. a just a franchise that everyone was just begging for a sequel to be made to. If you're ever curious to go through the older Exorcist films, Exorcist the Beginning and Dominion, a prequel to the Exorcist, they're essentially, I want to say they're the same film, but one of them's like the director's cut, which was the 2005 release. Are they, are they good? No, so don't watch them. <laughs> but three, uh, Exorcist 3 Legion. Pretty good pretty good movie that was that was good that was actually yeah. william peter blatty returned he'd written the he'd written the novel put in yep. a lot of thought and was very heavily involved with that film so that was actually one i yeah. highly recommend not only did he direct it he wrote the novel it's called legion he wrote right. it because he hated this movie so much which we'll get to mm -hmm. uh, he had nothing to do with this movie that we're about to cover and then yeah did you ever see the official TV series called The Exorcist that ran on Fox for two seasons in 2016? I did not. Me neither. I like how we're just bringing up all this IP and we're like, well, we didn't see that, but... We didn't see it, but there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot there. Maybe our listeners are like, I, I do remember seeing that 2016-2017 series. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I don't know. I... I it's about a pair of exorcists who investigate cases of demonic possession, which probably shouldn't surprise anyone. So it probably should have been called the exorcists since it's about two of them. 
My point is, uh, The Exorcist is not what you would call a flagship franchise. You basically have the original film that everybody loves, and then you have everything else. Even though the third one was pretty good, I don't think it's a classic. Hmm. Anton, do you like horror movies in general? I, I do. I definitely, like, personally, I really enjoy horror films, and I think that they're able to reach into different parts of the mind that other films can't. And I've talked about this before. A really good horror film is just able to bring up a lot of that tension and a lot of feeling and release it with like the fear or the payoff in a very smart and fun way. In the same way, you can always feel satisfied with a good joke. It's well said. I I like horror with conditions. Just like any other genre, I'm a story guy first and foremost. And as long as there's a compelling story with interesting characters, I'm usually on board. And that's why I like the original Exorcist so much. Like the horror element was just a bonus to what I thought was a really great story with really well acted, well written characters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the difference between do you want, do people really enjoy the buildup and the suspense, um, the questions about faith, the questions about evil, or do they just want the parts where someone's head's turning, they're doing spider walks and throwing up? If you have just one or just the other, it does a complete film. It does not make right. So you, you need to have a good balance just like any film. And so a great horror film, in my opinion, should touch on both. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's a pretty long-winded answer of why this movie was chosen, but I feel like it was all warranted. So let's talk about the production history. Neither William Peter Blatty nor William Friedkin, the writer, producer, and the director, respectively, of the original Exorcist, had any desire to involve themselves in a sequel. They actually met at one point to discuss one, but uh, they did not develop anything with that, so they abandoned the idea for it. The most likely reason, though, this is interesting, is that both Friedkin and Blatty were involved in lawsuits with the studio and uh, inadvertently each other over the profits and the credits for the for the original film. And Blatty actually was barred from post-production during the first film. Hmm. Yeah, could have been why. And according to the film's co-producer, Richard Letterer, Exorcist 2 was conceived as a relatively low budget affair. He said, quote, What we essentially wanted to do with the sequel was redo the first movie, have the central figure, an investigative priest, interview everyone involved with the exorcism, and then fade out to unused footage, unused angles from the first film. A low-budget rehash about $3 million of The Exorcist, a rather cynical approach to movie making, I'll admit. But that was the start, end quote. Okay, he's basically saying this is a cash grab. (laughs) Absolutely. It's just just not a shame at all. No, no. So uh, the studio hired this playwright named William Goodhart to write the script, and they based it on the theories of the Jesuit paleontologist archaeologist who had inspired the character of Father Merrin in Bladder's Blatty's original novel. Goodhart's screenplay took more a a more metaphysical and intellectual approach. <laughs> I can't even say that one straight. Sure. Uh, compared to the original <laughs> film, he he envisioned the battle between good and evil taking place within the human consciousness. And they they allegedly tried to get Stanley Kubrick to direct this. I wonder if this is what inspired him to make his own horror film a couple years later with The Shining. Oh, I have no evidence to support that, but they really did try to get Kubrick on board. I don't think it would have saved the film. Oh, Um, hell no. Oh, no. 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 So John Borman is the guy that um, had the unfortunate task of uh, agreeing to direct this. And he stated 
quote, the idea of making a metaphysical thriller greatly appealed to my psyche, end quote. Interesting. Borman had been offered the chance to direct the first film, which he not only turned down, but he advised Warner Brothers against making it, calling it negative and destructive. So yes, Anton, they hired a director who was vehemently opposed to the first film to make a sequel. Hmm. And uh, Linda Blair, she was convinced to return as Reagan after making it clear that she would not wear any of the prosthetic makeup from the original. So all of the flashbacks of her possessed are, are a double and uh, very obviously a double, which we'll touch on later. And, I mean, um, I'm glad Linda yeah. Blair was uh, really standing up for her career at such a young age. <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Her, I, I mean. Know. Was that the only thing that she decided that she was going to stand up for? Because she said yes to a lot of other questionable things the rest of her career. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Ellen Bernstein did not want to return, and most nope. drafts of the screen most drafts of the screenplay featured her role in a central role, eventually dying at the end of the film and passing uh, Reagan's custody onto Father Lamont. And due to their resemblance, this is why Louise Fletcher was hired to replace her as Chris McNeil when the role was still in the script. But it wasn't until shortly before shooting started that Kitty and Kitty Wynn agreeing to return to her own role, that the role of Chris was swapped, and then Fletcher took the role of Dr. Jean Tuscan. So they made up this role for mm. Louise Fletcher for a bunch of really not clear reasons other than they couldn't agree or get people to return. So but they did get Max von Sydow to return as Father Marin. Uh, huh. Any thoughts on these actors? Well, I, I mean, you do see very typical studio attempts to cash in on what made the original successful. But, well, as seems to be first observation the execution is not quite there. There's a lot of compromises being made. Yeah. And for the role of Father Lamont, they tried to get John Voight. They tried to get David Carradine, Jack Nicholson, and Christopher Walken. And it was, you know, he was originally written as a younger character. And what I've read is that they really tried to cast Jack Nicholson in this. And Jack Nicholson, being the acting genius that he was, turned this down. But actually, John Voight agreed to take the role, but then he left after disagreements and he was replaced by Richard Burton. The character was rewritten to fit Burton's age. Dr. Tuscan was originally supposed to be a man before Louise Fletcher accepted the role of Chris. And then of course they changed the role around to make her the main person that's helping Reagan because uh, Ellen Bernstein didn't want to be in the movie. But regardless, filming began in May 1976 at Burbank Studios in Hollywood. Location shooting was kept to a minimum despite Borman's efforts to film abroad. A key scene of a sleepwalking Reagan about to wander off a rooftop was filmed in New York City. Borman grew unhappy with the original script and he asked Goodhart to rewrite it. The playwright refused, so Borman and another writer did their own polish during filming, and ultimately countless rewrites were done. And at one point, Linda, Linda Blair recalled, quote, it was a really good script at first. Then after everybody signed on, they rewrote it five times and it ended up looking like nothing like the same movie, end quote. Linda Blair also said that Richard Burton started off sober during filming, but he frequently became drunk during the middle of production. And she said that tensions were high among the cast. Don't think I'm surprised by that. No, we'll get to Burton a little bit later, but he, he had a reputation at this point 
for being, uh, let's just say he was a fan of the drink. We'll touch on that later, though. Yeah, so Borman developed a severe respiratory infection during filming, which delayed production for over a month. And Roswell Pallenberg, the writer who worked with Borman on the script, ended up directing a number of scenes due to Borman's sickness, as well as providing his own rewrites. Blair said in one interview that Pallenberg directed a lot of the film, as well as did rewrites. Pallenberg was credited as a second unit director and a creative associate. And some of the film became oversaturated, requiring numerous scenes to be reshot. The original $8 million budget rapidly grew, nearly doubling $14 million. Listeners, you'll be shocked to know this film had a larger budget than Star Wars, which had come out a month before this. That is nuts. Painful. <laughs> An original rough cut of the movie was three hours long. Amongst the scenes which were deleted from the final version was a special effects sequence of the African church being destroyed by the demon Pazuzu. Exorcist 2 was finally released more than a year after filming began. Audiences reported laughing multiple times throughout the film, and William Peter Blatty recalled laughing during it. Borman pulled the film out of theaters twice to do some more editing. Gene Siskel rewarded this film zero stars and declared it the worst film he'd ever seen. It sits at a 10% Rotten Tomato score and a 3.8 IMDb score. So truly horrific critical reception. I know in the past we've talked about how Rotten Tomato scores may not be the end-all be-all, but I do give a bit more credit to those scores now, because, or a bit more now, because it's also important to note that they've started to weigh more on the scores given there. So not only is it a combination of weighted scores for user perceptions of the film, but also critical reception. So there's a lot of weight to these scores that we're saying. Yeah, and 10%, that is like, that really is all-time bad. There are not many movies that score that no, low. That is, the IMDb score of 3.8, holy cow. That is tragic. Yeah. <laughs> so Pauline Kale was one of the rare defenders of the film, preferring it to the original. You, you, you wrote it in the notes that you questioned her judgment as a critic. It yeah. made yep. me question if she was on drugs. Yeah, it's like she's a really famous film critic. She died a long time ago, but very influential. And you know, she was she was known for having a lot of unconventional opinions about films. This has got to be high on the list of unconventional uh, opinions. To prefer I mean, this over the original, uh, you're right. It's like like did somebody make her pee in a cup? <laughs> but we could also wonder: was it just someone trying to to like trying to have a hot take to have a hot take? Very possible. She just wanted to zag a little bit. Get some attention. Martin but, Scorsese, of yeah. all people, gave a half-assed attempt at trying to praise this. He has some interesting comments about it. If you see a lot of those films. Yeah. 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 At the same time, you know, listeners should know Scorsese, you know, was good friends with John Borman. So, yeah, everyone knows somebody in Hollywood. And the film did enjoy, you know, a strong opening weekend of the box office. It did make its budget back, but, but it made, <laughs> but. <laughs> but it earned nearly 200 million less than the first film. Yeah. Negative word of mouth aside, this came out around the same time as some very, very big films. So we already mentioned Star Wars. It also came out during Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
The Spy Who Loved Me, and Smokey and the Bandit. And I think the film that really stood out to me there was Smokey and the Bandit. That's a great film. Great movie. Classic. Yeah, what a, that's pretty good summer, 1977. Yeah, 77 was yeah. really, had a lot of great hits. And then this film, for whatever yeah. reason. I was going to say, as long as you avoided this, you probably would have had a good time at the movies. Yeah. The real legacy of the film is that William Peter Blatty hated it so much that he wrote a sequel to the original, Legion, which was published in 1980. Uh, Ten years later, he adapted his own book into what was The Exorcist Three. It was such a great film compared to, I mean, compared to Exorcist 2, I think it's going to look like a great film, but it really was more of a return to form. And it was just so fun being able to see Blatty's vision, but in like a 90s like execution. It was really cool. And yeah. I really like that story. Interesting movie. Worth it alone just for the Patrick Ewing cameo. <laughs> right fun fact there are a lot of horror films that were released in the 90s that uh, that featured nba player cameos can you name the other that i'm thinking of mm, no uh it was the stand short short limited series films um which had kareem abdul jabbar as a doomsday as like a, just a, a, a doomsday fanatic i don't remember that yeah it, it's a it's a fun take oh, so it's a fun okay. little cameo Anton, let's talk about why wasn't it better for Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Uh, number one, the writing and the production. We mentioned how many rewrites that this film script underwent. Actually, we didn't because no one seems to know. There's not really an exact number. I said at least five in the notes, but apparently the screenplay went under, underwent so many changes that the original story became unrecognizable to those on set. And Linda Blair has been the most vocal about this. We gave her, you know, gave a couple of her quotes earlier, but she was so displeased that she actually tried to get out of the film during production, but she couldn't because of the contract that she signed. Mm. So there's almost no way of knowing what the original story would have looked like. Well, now we know this because she said the final film had no resemblance to the original story. I tried to do some research on what Borman and Pallenberg added to Goodhart's original story, and I, I couldn't find anything concrete. But one thing I do want to add here is just where we see, I mean, we've seen this before, right? Like we've seen before, without a clear vision or a clear story, we start to, it, it all starts at the head. So once you have that element, Everything else that unfolds, there's no clear execution and vision. So when you have yeah. that, there's probably going to be a lot of rewrites. When you have a lot of rewrites, you're going to have a lot of confusion. When you have a lot of confusion, you see it unfold on the screen. Is that fair to say? Definitely fair to say. And to build on what you, the point you're making is they started off the story idea with let's make a cash grab. We don't know what the story is going to be yet, but let's make a cash grab pseudo sequel to the first movie then then there's the other part of this right how borman pulled the film out of theaters twice to do some more editing so there's at least three theatrical versions so the <laughs> film that we watched on hbo max max sorry whatever that's not even the original film that was released in the theater it, you know it, it was some change was made at least twice which is horrifying to think about that there was yes. an even worse version out there. It's it's very possible. It, look, I mean, like this is the bottom line. Do you even consider this a horror movie? Like, is this a is this a horror movie? No, absolutely not. It's it has maybe some horrifying images, or like it maybe has some horror elements, but I wouldn't put it in a horror film no. category. 
Yeah, the 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 very beginning where the possessed girl immolates herself. Mm-hmm. That was kind of creepy. And then, you know, Reagan almost sleepwalking off the skyscraper. I guess kind I I nah, I, that, I can't even no. I mean, no. it's it's like a the actual subject matter is very like horrific, right? Um possession, demons. Yeah. You see a lot of that in the film. You see demonic possession, you see instances of that are that should be like horrific, but then the way that it's executed on film sometimes hilarious. So, for example, typically when you think of like something's on fire and like it could be caused by demonic possession, oh. that should be that should be scary. Yeah, right? I know I know what you're going to say. But instead, what happens in this film is fire occurs out of nowhere in the basement of the of the hospital. Burton's character decides the best way to deal with the fire is to hit it with I think crutches. Yep. That's correct. I don't know why they decided to go with that take and say that makes sense. And so when when you get a scene that's supposed to add to the tension of like there's something supernatural going on, already there was a lot of weird cuts in that scene where you just see like Burton's eyes just darting back and forth weirdly in the scene. Um and the just whole interaction scotch. Just re it was a really uncomfortable scene to see. And then you just get the hilarity of him just trying to put out a fire very ineffectively with some crutches. So it should be a scary scene, but it actually plays out pretty hilariously. You know what there's not in this movie? There yeah. isn't really an exorcism in this movie. No. You know, not not really. No. Nah, like you got a you got a clone Reagan. Right. The doppelganger, which we'll get to. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that confused me at doing the research, I, and I was can just want to say I'm going to mention this a couple of times. I was confused um throughout watching this movie. Borman yep. said that he wanted to make a metaphysical thriller more than a horror film, right? He wanted it to be like uplifting in contrast with what he saw as the ugliness of the original film. What the hell does that even mean? Metaphysical thriller? That sounds like something that you're trying to sell to a studio, but you don't actually know yourself. Like, what does that even mean? I want to make a metaphysical thriller. It sounds like something I could pe- uh, I could pick up at my uh, local East and West uh, metaphysics bookstore next to everything about alternative medicines. This wasn't even based on source material. No, no. I see a lot of these elements in the writing, like claims about metaphysical thriller. It's fair to say, like the approach to making this film was let's make a smart film, right? Like I think that's what it d- dilutes to is. They were trying to make something "quote unquote" smart, but it wasn't. No, and the, the main plot doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, Father Lamont—that's Richard Burton's character for the listeners—his purpose and motivation is pretty poorly developed. And then you have this science fictiony sort of machine thing that they're you—it's this like hypnotic Vulcan <laughs> mind meld thing that they yeah. connect Reagan and someone else. It's inexplicable. And especially when you're throwing that into the supernatural demon possession thing that you have going on. But I don't like what would you describe the the machine as? Because I I haven't I wrote down in my notes. It's a complete contrivance. A huge chunk of this movie 
It deals with this psychic metronome hypnosis machine thing, which it puts the doctor and patient into like a trance and it, it allows them to read each other's minds, but it's it's portable also. You can kind of take it anywhere with you. Right. And it's like and sometimes it works immediately and sometimes it takes time. I it's just a total contrivance. It's very like pseudoscientifical, right? With if you attach like a headband with a bunch of electrodes and wires connecting that to like a larger machine and then there's no instruct like there's no they don't dive into any instructions was there like a user guide that it comes with no like how did they know how to use it and and that's why i was so like when you get a a burton's care or father lamont's character just like jumps in like oh i can save her i know where she is he just immediately knows what to do i've never seen one of these i know what she is and it was just bizarre because it just like it's another element of the film where you think to like already I'm like this is so this is definitely not the original film and it's this is hard to follow but there's just that is one area where it's like I'm not going to suspend belief for a second that this machine makes sense I wonder if it was just a 1970s thing if there was like a, an obsession with psychic stuff back then because th- it's not a 70s movie but it came later I was thinking this type of um like pseudoscience supernatural stuff has been done better I'm thinking about the movie Poltergeist if right. you remember like in that film there's like they get you know they think the house is haunted and they and they get like paranormal investigators to come in and they have like these devices that that can um, you know, detect supernatural stuff. And, and they, they, they did the same thing in like Ghostbusters. So it, I, maybe it was related to that, but I, I just, I don't know. And I think that is where you can see without a clear vision for, or even a clear understanding of what they made the original film successful, which I'm not even saying like you have to do the exact same kind of film. But I think it comes down to like the core elements of like what makes a good film. So in preparation for this film, I wanted to find like a quote from, you know, uh, well-respected directors. And I couldn't think of anyone better than uh, one of my favorites, uh, Alfred Alfred Hitchcock. You know, quote from Alfred Hitchcock, the formula for making a picture is to find a single problem which is sufficiently enthralling to hold the attention of the people who are watching the play unfold, and yet not sufficiently difficult to demand uncomfortable concentration. So when you think of that, you can have a concept like demonic possession, the questions of believing in faith, believing in evil, and have it in the first film. And it's very, it's a very abnormal like concept that, because of the way that it's written, makes sense because it's just unfolding in a way that's natural and written in a way that doesn't ne- that doesn't need you to make a lot of jumps in logic to like try to figure out but when you have this film where you're starting to layer in a lot of concepts it, it makes me think one they didn't really understand what should they focus on as kind of the core problem of the film and try to maybe throw in a bunch of intellectual concepts theories about oh like telepathy is really popular right now let's throw that in maybe that helps build this universe a bit more it doesn't really lend itself to like what the core concept of like the series is which really should be possession no that's a good quote you you have there from hitchcock and like you're you're so right like also like 
like what's the threat in this film like what's the conflict it's just it's not in, like it's not incredibly clear like it's it, not I had no idea what was going on for like entire chunks of this movie. I, I was rewinding scenes to try to piece things together, but I, I still came away unsure about the plot. I, I mean, think I even you, texted you a couple times. Like, does this make sense to you? No. And like, e- even in the beginning of the film, when you're introduced to Reagan, she seems fine. Yeah. I had that. Yeah. Like what, what they're trying to dig up memories of the events from the first film. Like why she has a normal life now. She's living in this like baller ass apartment in Manhattan with her with her caretaker, who I didn't even remember from the first film. Apparently, she was no. the, the I, I didn't even know that played by Kitty Wynn. No idea. But like, and and then Lamont he learns that Pazuzu attacks people who have who have psychic healing abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I must have missed the part in the first film where Reagan develops telepathy and she has the ability to heal other people psychically. I uh, that that actually wasn't in the first film at all. It was not, and no. it was so contrived and just so like again, su- very pseudo scientific slash like metaphysical BS. It's a very strange thing to include in this, and it was so out of left field. It messed with my own memory because, like, in the middle of this film, where they established that Father Marin, he's the guy uh, Max von Sydow, and I guess he is the heretic. I guess, but when they said he was this priest who belonged to a group of theologians who believed psychic powers were a a spiritual gift and that people like Reagan and and Kokomo were like forerunners (laughs) of this new type of humanity. I'm like, wait a minute. I was like, I don't remember this at all from the first film. No. So I paused the movie. I took out my phone and I was like looking up the plot of the first film because I hadn't, you know, I haven't seen the original in a while. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is not in the first film at all it's not in the book at all it has nothing to do with the exorcist at all it's and it's insane because you had a very clear and easy concept in the first film right like when i think about okay there's something clearly wrong with this girl and like their family is concerned everyone can relate to that whether or not it's like demonic something demonic and there's like an evil demon causing it that's actually the second part of it where people can with their own faith resonate and say wait i know about this this is something that's scary like that ties me in more when you start to add these other elements of like trying to develop telepathy or like actually in this greater universe there's something about like spiritual healers and we need to go on spiritual journeys to identify like to take down this greater spiritual evil. I see that as more of just like a distraction to that takes away from something that's way more interesting, which is essentially like things like concern for a loved one. That's something that easily resonates and translates. But there wasn't even that in this film, was there? No. You you had sort of you had Louise's Louise Fletcher's character Dr. Tuscan. She was like kind of the stand-in for Ellen Bernstein. But it doesn't really track because, again, you have she's just she's just like her psychiatrist. Right. But she's like, is she a patient in that facility? Because she (laughs) leaves the facility later on, which I'll get to. But like, I I really apologize to the listeners because like Anton, like we really tried to understand this plot so we could digest it and maybe explain it for this episode. But But I I was just genuinely confused by all the things that were happening. 
Yeah, no, it's all of it's the difficult. scenes early on. Well, the, the whole movie, everything feels disjointed. This is the most obvious plot hole I could think of. And again, I don't. This is this. They should have just never made the movie based on this alone. So Father Lamont, he's tasked with finding out what happened to Father Merritt, right? Okay, that's understandable. Hmm. Is the people at the um? I almost said the Pentagon, but the Vatican. <laughs> They're like, hey, we, even though this happened four years ago, we just now decided that we need you to go find out what happened to Father Merrin because he died during this alleged exorcism, right? So again, four years later, for whatever reason, they just decide to get around to it. All he has to go on are police reports, right? The only people who survived that night are Reagan, her mother, and um, the caretaker. What's a Kitty Wynn? I don't even remember her character's name. Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. Sure. Kitty Wynn. So- Ellen Bernstein didn't want to be in the movie, so her char- so his character can't question her. But that would be the most obvious place to start. It's this huge plot hole. He's trying to find out what happens, but instead of going to the adult that was there that night, he just shows up in Manhattan at this psychiatric facility. This is all in the opening 20 minutes. It goes from the botched exorcism in the beginning. Well, I guess that was going to be an exorcism. Who knows? Zero context there. Then it's Reagan visiting Dr. Tuscan for some bad expository dialogue, and then Lamont getting his assignment, and then him immediately showing up at Dr. Tuscan's office. Like, how does he even know to go to this facility in Manhattan? It just jumps one after the other. It makes zero sense. And then at one point, it just dissolves to Reagan putting on the, the dream hypnosis metronome machine thing. I don't know. All of the flashbacks to Possessed Reagan, it's like clearly not Linda Blair. The actor playing her looks noticeably different. The voice of Pazuzu is noticeably different. I have no idea what was going on. The, the psychic battle between Reagan and her possessed memory half, and they're they're fighting over Dr. Tuscan's heart, and it's like this weird hand sex thing. I, I don't I was watching yeah. this with my wife, and you know, she was just like, "She's like, what, what is going on?" I, I, I did not have an explanation. Yeah, no, it's uh, I'm, I'm just shrugging my shoulders as you say this, just because I'm like, yeah, yep, yeah, that happened. I don't get it, but it happened. Can you at least answer this part? So, like, it's a suppressed memory, right? Right. But it's like actively alive in the moment, and then so Pazuzu <sighs> is still in Reagan. So the the exorcism in the first film when. Pazuzu gets transferred to um, Jason Miller's character, right? And then he gets possessed and he throws himself out the window. So it it never, Pazuzu didn't leave Reagan? That's what they say uh, with this film, which doesn't make sense. No. And then, of course, Reagan never really uses her telepathy powers to do anything other than like draw pictures of a fire. And then Father Lamont interprets that as there must be a fire in the building but that's that's never brought up again she never does anything like that again and then we can't talk about this movie without talking about the funniest (laughs) thing in it so writer listeners if you if you take it upon yourself to watch this turd of a movie at the 25 minute mark richard burton has this line where he says it's horrible utterly horrible and fascinating and he's i guess he's breaking the fourth wall he's staring into the camera for sev- several seconds hilarious i have no idea what's going on there's a lot of shots like that but that one in particular you're like what kind of are they are they going for an artistic angle here couldn't tell you oh. there's wow. there's por- there's parts of the movie where he's literally wandering around africa looking for kokomo it's like the script was wandering around with him, and then Reagan's doing this cabaret routine. It's really confusing. There's no concept of time or distance or like no. all of the travel he has to do. He just happens to be in Africa, maybe somewhere. Yeah, 
And then, I mean, we're jumping around with the plot here, but I mean, we're, we're doing our best. So I guess the, the, the funniest slash worst part of the movie would be the, the climax, like the last 30 minutes. Uh, I don't really understand what the plan was. So Reagan and Father Lamont, they travel back to the Georgetown house t- to do to do what? What's the plan? I can't tell you. It's makes they, they, they don't they didn't have one. They didn't no, share if they had one. I, no. And they so then. Oh, Sharon is her name. The Kitty Wynn character. OK. So Dr. Tuscan and Sharon, they're flying back to to dc she steps out of the car right and then reagan and father lamont they go back to the house from the first film but we don't know to do what the house starts tearing itself apart and then he slaps her around a bit before he pulls her evil doppelganger's heart out through her stomach yeah we're not kidding folks we're clearly like we are seriously at a loss for words at how confusing this film was it's one of those situations where i've only seen the movie once under normal circumstances i would have gone back and rewatched it a second time to try to piece it together and because usually you know i just, i watch these movies twice right i watch it mm-hmm. once with no notes and just paying attention then i watch it a second time to take notes i could not even bring myself to watch this again and so I, I was just googling stuff like what happened here, what happened there. But it it wouldn't even help, I think, to watch it a second time. It was no. such a nonsensical film. No. What I did read is that the climactic battle was supposed to be far more graphic with with like sexual content, but Burton and Linda Blair refused to do it, so Borman had to rewrite that part too. And then the house gets destroyed by some kind of an earthquake, but none of the neighbors seem to notice this. Dr. Tuscan is running out on the streets screaming for help. If any of you have been to the Exorcist house in Georgetown, it's in the middle of Washington, D.C. It's a very populated neighborhood. And then the fire department and ambulances, they show up all at once, out of nowhere, immediately. Who called them? We're not sure. And then Sharon just uh, immolates herself and she dies of her wounds. Yep. It's uh, the whole interaction, too. When you think about interactions with the demon or with Pazuzu... (laughs) count how many times we say it during the podcast comparing that to the original exorcist it's like they had no idea what they were doing just no. any interaction any tension in the film i mean we're going to talk about this any dialogue in the film oh how did th- how did that work i was possessed by a demon oh it's okay he's gone that's a real that's, line that's that's my favorite scene in the film because of how uh how uh linda blair delivers it just straight faced to that poor little girl i feel bad for linda blair her um, career she, this this movie messed up her career she was never yeah. the same after this and you get some great richard burton dialogue i was face to face with the evil that's inside her your machine has proved scientifically that there's an ancient demon locked within her <laughs> you've got to fight that demon inside her it's preventing her from reaching full spiritual power uh. Dr. Tuscan at one point says, I'm going to D.C. I'll be back in a few hours. A few hours from New York City? Yeah, what? Dr. Doctor Tuscan, too, I don't know if you noticed this, it just kept downplaying the importance of her mind-reading, spiritual connecting device. <laughs> She's like, yeah, but I just made this simple thing. It's not a big deal. I just think it's funny how it was so portable. They, like, take it with them. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, no. it needed to be some sort of device. They're like, how do we make this work? Wow, let's just make a invention. Look, if you need help getting through this movie, take a drink every time Seven says Pazuzu. 
Yeah, it'll help you so well because you're just going to black out. Yeah. As far as the production goes, I think we just railed on the writing. I don't even know if this movie has writing, but the rest of the production, what did we think of Dr. Tuscan's office, which is located in a cross between a carnival hall of mirrors and the bridge of the Starship Enterprise? It, it made like spatially like no sense. Like where was there an office versus where was there anything else and yeah. it just even the room where they would have like different patients in i was it was bizarre how like the setup of everything in in different scenes within that office and again not sure if reagan is like a, an inpatient there because at one point she's leaving and yeah. one of the receptionists hey she's like hey where are you going and she's like Shh, it's okay and just walks out and then in the next scene they're like reagan's missing what do we do it's like um the editing is pretty disjointed the cinematography, yeah. I thought it was pretty incompetent. And it's, it's a shame because the guy who shot this movie, his name's William A. Fraker. He was a really accomplished cinematographer. He shot stuff like Rosemary's Baby, Bullet, Heaven Can Wait, 1941, War Games, Tombstone, Street Fighter, pretty high profile stuff. Yeah. And it's not like they didn't, again, it's not like they didn't try to, I think they did try to take like, an artistic, I said this before, where they want to make a quote smart film, and then maybe they wanted to take artistic vision. Like, for example, you get a lot of scenes from the perspective of a locust showing you through Africa. Remember that? I mean, it's very clearly shot on a set, and it's not not very well either. I no. mean, one of the most confusing scenes for me was the exorcism scene that was in between mountains. And oh, you mean when they're they're climbing up and that the only way to get to the temple is to do some kind of Legend of Zelda climb, right? While you're doing the exorcism in while climbing kind of thing. It was just very confusing. My wife just entered the room. Baby, we're talking about exorcist, too. How much did you enjoy that? <laughs> OK, really yeah. enjoyed it. Is that what we're two thumbs up? She sat there through the whole thing, and she likes a lot of horror movies, and by the end, she was kind of like, can you just let me know when you're going to watch something like this again? Because I don't want to be involved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tried to warn her. I was like, this is supposed to be one of the worst movies of all time. Yeah, I mean, I hear you about the, he was. they were trying to do some artistic stuff, but I don't know. Again, again very poor execution. Yeah, pretty disappointing from John Borman, and it, it really makes you wonder... So he got sick, right? And he was just absent. And this guy, um, whatever his name was, ended up filming a bunch of scenes. I wonder mm -hmm. how much of that he actually filmed, because it seemed like there was not a professional on set for a lot of this stuff. I mean, one could maybe chalk it up to because it's a bit of a mishmash of ideas. And there was a it, it was a cash grab right by the studio. So they didn't really care what came what the end product was so as long as they were able to put something together that kind of looked like a film they were okay with it so it's just disappointing from that sense well in that sense they succeeded because this does kind of look like a film i'll give them credit for that right. does it sound like one i mean some Ennio, of the Ennio morricone did the score one of the most acclaimed composers of all time i was not a fan of the nope. score no. no nothing no 
The second reason why this wasn't better, the performances. None of the actors acquit themselves well here. Uh, Maybe it's because they all knew they had subpar material to work with. Maybe because Borman got sick and he couldn't be as involved as as he would have been. But whatever the reason, I found the acting laughable in a lot of scenes. Yeah. In the intro, we were we were really hyping up Richard Burton, right? And he's mm-hmm. one of the all-time greats. But by this point in his career, he was running on fumes. His chronic alcoholism severely impacted his work and personal life. And according to his biographer, Robert Sellers, quote, at the height of his boozing in the mid-70s, he was knocking back three to four bottles of hard liquor a day, end quote. And it... Thinking about how old he was uh, during filming, I was shocked because he did he he looked really bad for his age. Yeah, he was only fifty one during the filming of this. Yeah, yeah, he passed away in nineteen eighty four at only fifty eight years old. Tragic. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, he, again, I, we said this before, but like, if you're not familiar with his work, go go out and look him up because he he really is a legendary actor. And it's a shame because an actor of his caliber really could have elevated this film, but he doesn't. You know, he wasn't the first choice. He wasn't the second choice. It's unclear if he was even familiar with the with the material that he was acting on. Burton is acting every scene like he's stuck in a parking garage and he can't find his car. He seems completely lost. He's wandering around. You can see him visibly losing interest with each scene. And like I said, he is sweating scotch. Like he is sweating oh, the yes. entire film. And it's just because you get a lot of close-ups in this film, there's a lot of cuts where you just, you can see that look in his eyes where it's just like, he's not here right now. Like He is not having a good time. He might have been possessed for all we know. I mean. Oh, wait, isn't his character possessed at one point when they're like on the the bus or whatever? Oh, oh, maybe. Yes, I think. I think. Think he is? I, I don't know. By Pazuzu? Um, sure. Um, the other Oscar winner in this, Louise Fletcher, she might as well be a mannequin. She is wooden. No, it was, I don't yeah, know if there was like good. a lot of bad ADR, but her acting is so low energy. It's like she was on tranquilizers. There was also. I, I like to think too. In any of the scenes where where there was like there was attempts at like trying to show like urgency fear i think once you have that like really horrible dialogue to add to the exposition of the scene it's just it's this trifecta of just terrible oh it's awful it, it's it, like he's when when um lamont is giving her that rant about she needs to continue her work because reagan is possessed by a demon she just responds with i'll think about it that's it that's the only thing she says it just makes no sense, and I don't know what kind of coaching they were getting offset. What kind? What the director was saying on how they should just execute on the scenes, but it was just it honestly was bizarre just to see the way that some deliver the delivery of some lines were just so wooden. It's all cardboard. It's like they're they're just talking to each other. Like I'm looking for Reagan. Well, you're looking in the right place. I am fighting evil. Well, I don't know if I can help you. I'll have to think about it. Reagan likes to be on the balcony. Everyone is acting in the same flat monotone. Burton's monologue about evil is is just it's like watching cardboard. <sighs> and Linda then like, Blair has the most energy of anyone. She has like the sing song cheeriness, but it doesn't fit. It makes no, no sense. No, at, at least she was the only one who appeared to be trying. And look, real quick, back to Louise Fletcher. Like this kind of killed her career. If you look at her filmography, it tanks after this movie. 
she'll always be remembered for Nurse Ratched. But this is one of the weakest follow-ups to an Academy Award-winning performance that I can think of. She went to the highest peak, to the bottom of the barrel in only one film. And the only other thing I can recall her being in that I really liked her in was um, she was Kai Wynn in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was like a recurring role in that show. She was really good that's in that a, role. That's, that's a deep cut. Um, I mean, to be fair, I think a lot of names that were attached to this film just they did it for the money and i guess the curse of this film is yeah it really did hurt a lot of careers yeah i mean like burton was you know we already mentioned what his issues were linda blair really never was any anything famous again after this yeah i mean just bad acting across the board my favorite bit of bad acting though is any time that they're hooked up to the hypnosis machine <laughs> The way they're like hilariously slowly blinking their eyes and pretending to be in a trance. It's really funny stuff. I'll post that on um, our Twitter account if I can find a good uh, YouTube clip of it. We, we haven't even mentioned James Earl Jones. Right. And I think like you would think someone like James Earl Jones with his level of acting could help some in this film, but not really. He was in it for like 10 seconds. I deliberately avoided talking about the part of the plot where he he's he's like a, a like a witch doctor and then he turns out to be just a, a regular doctor that works with locusts. They don't explain it at all. They never no. explain it. No. And then Ned Beatty, he's one of the most famous character actors of that era. Um, he has a cameo as like a bush pilot who specializes in random African religious cities. My only guess, Anton, is that he must have had his family threatened by the studio <laughs> to appear in this film as a, as a cameo because there's there's no valid reason why he would take this role. No, yeah, that's uh that's fair. Um, one of the most bizarre scenes is when you're supposed to be in the from the perspective of a locust, which is Pazuzu is um, like, Oh, like you want to see you like sending you're on the journey um, from the perspective of the locust. And you're also from the perspective of father Lamont going on the journey. And then there's this very distracting, like almost fluttering score going on in the background. Um, which the only thing I can think of describing is a sound of Mothra um, going in the background <laughs> until finally your, your face with like James Earl Jones character who yells like a leopard. I was like, I just focused for five minutes on that. Let's wrap this up. Did we like it? Oh man. Do you want to go first? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll go first. This was a horrible film and just disappointing for so many reasons, at least with some of these bad films that we've reviewed on this show that we've gone over, there's some, there's, there's some like positive takeaways. There are maybe a couple scenes in this film that like I can at least quote and laugh at, but otherwise there's just so much bad to this film that it really is just one of the worst films I've ever seen. I know we use we typically go from like an A to F scale, but like I feel like it's one of those cases where really having some sort of numbers, a uh, number system really helps indicate how low of an F it is. Like to me, like this is like 
like lower than 10% kind of F. Like this is like a 0.05 out of a hundred kind of F. <laughs> like it is so bad. It's really hard to find positives about this film. And like the ratings that we saw on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes make so much sense. Um, and I agree with, I think they should even be lower just because of like how in your face this film is about bad writing, bad acting, bad dialogue, horrible score, bad cinematography, um, and just an all around not fun film. Yeah, th- this should go down as like not only the worst sequel of all time, but just one of the worst films of all time. Okay, I've 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 gone on too much. I'm giving this film like an F. Get let's throw a negative on there. Let's yeah, an an, an F negative. F minus. Yeah, I'm with you on this. I mean, I was curious to watch this because this is always one of those movies when you see 10% Rotten Tomatoes score, you're like, well, is it really that bad? It is. That's an interesting thing you said. Is this the worst sequel of all time? It it may be. I'm struggling to think of one that I liked less. Uh, I, I found a quote, Christopher Porterfield of Time Magazine. He said, quote, most sequels offer more of the same. This one offers less of the same. The only synthesis in the film is between the ludicrous and the unintentionally comic, end quote. <laughs> John oh Borman ended up disowning this film. The writing is a total mess. It's all over the place. The story seems to confuse itself. It, it certainly confused me. There were entire segments of the film where I, I really had no idea what was going on. It, it has horror elements, but it isn't a horror movie. It has sci-fi elements, but it isn't a sci-fi movie. It relies heavily on the first film, but it also tries to retcon things about it at the same time. There's at least a half dozen lines that are so stupid, they're unintentionally hilarious. The acting is entirely bad. It's like everyone was on tranquilizers. Richard Burton should have been ashamed for even participating in this. I, I really was prepared to give this a chance, just having never seen it before, but it it really does deserve all the hate that it, that it gets. Yep. This is actual garbage. This is by far the worst film that we've covered so far on this podcast. This is so bad that I am now sort of like rethinking how bad movies can be. This really was difficult for me to get through. Considering the cast and who made this, there's just no excuse for how bad this was. This was really was a total cash grab. It didn't attempt to honor the source material at all. In fact, there was no source material because the individual who who conceived it in the first place rejected the idea of the sequel in the first place. I can stomach plenty of bad movies, but this is like called the United Nations bad. There's not a single thing about it that made me glad I watched it. This belongs on Mystery Science Theater. Mm -hmm. I mean, you say it's the worst sequel ever made. I, I can't. I can't really argue that. I am so pleased that I managed to avoid watching it until now. I would not watch this again. This is an F minus 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 for me. If I could go lower to G or H, I would. Yep. And I was sort of thinking about this, like reassessing things. So prior to this, you and I both gave three F ratings for the same movies. Death Note, Spider-Man 3, and Hannibal. Those films are like masterpieces compared to this. <laughs> and. I'm, I, will, I will say this. There's still Fs. But oh, yeah. This deserves its own level of F. 100%. I'm glad you brought up the number rating idea, and we, we should reinforce that. Death Note, Spider Man 3, Hannibal, I would give those like kind of like letter grading in school. Those are like like 50s, 
40s maybe this is this is the 10 percent rotten tomato thing is is completely appropriate right so that being said we both hate this movie are we interested in seeing the new one exorcist believer i am not (laughs) no i'm not um but i will end up seeing it just because i do enjoy horror films and it's actually discounted right now at the drive-in theater by my place so why not so you're going to drive somewhere and pay money to see it? Uh, it's only five bucks, and I can eat a burrito in the truck while watching. So, All right. Well, yeah. you let me know how it I'll, goes. I will. I'm, it's, my expectations are very low, so I don't think it, it, it does not, it, it, it does not uh, f- fit the criteria for our, for our podcast at all. It's just I know no. it's going to be bad. No, no, I don't. I don't know a single person that's excited for a new Exorcist film. <laughs> it's just that they paid four hundred million for it. That's amazing. <laughs> that is. Hey, oh, good for them. Man. I mean, yeah. Are they gonna? I mean, are they making money? Kind of. Um, right mm-hmm. now in the box office, the budget listed was at thirty million for the film, and right now, as of today, they're at forty-five point one million through the box office so they haven't made money yet they haven't yet and plus they haven't even talked about what their marketing push has been so well keep in mind so they have to sort of double their investment of 400 million to right break they, still even. Have, they still have that <laughs> yeah yeah good thing there's two more movies coming along oh, but boy. um well that's it for exorcist Two: yeah. the heretic oh my final thought on this um, if any of the listeners haven't seen it, this is a first for the podcast. Don't watch this movie. Yeah, just just don't. It, it it's really not worth it. If you if you want to see it for continuity with our podcast, I mean, maybe check it out. It's on Max streaming right now. But like this, truly, I would not recommend this to anyone. Yeah, I I I do want to put that out there. Maybe do like do we make uh, do we have a first and put a public service announcement? Like, do not watch this film. Yeah, like, I'll I'll throw that on Twitter. Yeah, I think that's probably the best option because we care about our listeners and we don't want to subject them to this. Definitely not. But it you know won't be the last Richard Burton movie we cover this season. We got one coming up. But uh, anyway, that's it for Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Uh, Anton, what do we have next on deck? Uh, next on deck, uh, we have lots of fun. I'll tell you that. We do. Have, I don't think we've picked a movie yet. It's going to be a scary-ish movie. I don't know what listeners can expect yet. I have a couple horror movies on deck that we could cover that we've got guests for. But we'll but yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll find. We'll see. We'll find something. Either way, our listeners can look forward to some fun, some laughs, and of course, a movie that certainly should have been better. Most definitely. Well, we will see you next time on Why Wasn't It Better. Thank you.